we hope in coming days, in the will of the Lord, to study together in some depth, at least, the epistle to the Colossians. The first thing that we have to say about this book of Scripture is that it is one of what is known as the prison epistles. That is to say, one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was a prisoner of the Romans. He was a jailbird, and yet he was mightily used of God as what he described in Ephesians, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, one who blessed the church, we might say, as much with his pen as he did with his mouth. There are 20 books in the New Testament that were written as epistles, letters. And it's good to remember that. But the Apostle Paul wrote, probably dictated, used someone else uh, to write out the words. Paul wrote these words as an epistle, as a letter to a congregation, to a church. I always think it's good for us when we read a book like Colossians to imagine ourselves transported through time back to that particular location, the city of Colossae, and imagine that we're right there in the church. We're seated in our seat or our pew in the assembly and somebody is reading this letter out loud to us. And we are really listening carefully to every word because it comes from a man who loves us. A man who has ministered to us. And a man who desires the best for us. And that's why he's writing to us. We want to hear that message. I think it's good as well to read this book through, like many of the Bible books that are a bit shorter, at one sitting. It won't hurt us to do that. And it won't even hurt us to read it a second time or a third time. That its message might be reinforced in our souls. It's also beneficial when you're reading a book like this to take a bird's eye view of it. A panoramic view, if you like. Taking the whole thing in before you proceed to study the contents of the book in some detail. It's always a good way to study your Bible. Take the overall message of a book and then start to hone in on individual portions of the book. A bird's eye view, you, you imagine a hawk or an eagle that's way up on high and they focus in on something from that panoramic viewpoint. But they can actually, and I have only read this and heard of this, a bird like a hawk can actually, almost like a camera, the way its lens will retract, it can focus in on something so that it becomes really, really big from a great distance. And so that's what we do when we study the Bible in detail. This epistle, if you want to sum it up, it is a book that deals with doctrine and duty. That's easy to remember. Doctrine or teaching and duty or practice. The key, if you like, to the text, or to the, the book, the key text, the key verses, I believe are found in chapter 2, in verses 9 and 10. We see here 
a great statement of theology concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in the book more or less revolves around these words. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The word fullness is a Greek word, pleroma. It has to do with completeness. And we know that there are other verses in this epistle that use that kind of terminology, fullness. In him dwelleth all the fullness, the completeness of the Godhead in a body. That's what the verse means. And ye are complete in him. And there is that related word there. There's a fullness that we enjoy in him. Ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So summing this up, you have the fullness or the completeness of God in Christ. And you have the fullness or the completeness of Christ in the believer. And that's what this book is about. In this epistle, the apostle expounds the doctrine of the living Christ. But he also explains the duty of the loving Christian. The doctrine of the living Christ. The duty of the loving Christian. On the one hand, there's the Christ who lives in his people. Then there's the thought of how his people are to live as those who are in him. The preeminence of Christ is here. We see the words used in verse 18 of chapter 1 at the end of that text, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That Christ may be the central figure. It's all about him. Christ is all. The preeminence of Christ. But as well as the preeminence of Christ and flowing from that, you have the practice of the Christian. So if you think about it again, you have Paul dealing with doctrine, and it's basically the doctrine of Christ, but also dealing with the matter of the Christian's duty, as those who are in Christ. There was a good outline given by a man called J.A. Stewart, and I don't think I could really improve on that when it comes to looking at the four chapters in Colossians. And if you want to take a note of this, you can. In chapter 1, you have the subject, the Christian and his Christ. The Christian and his Christ. In chapter 2, the subject is the Christian and his creed, or the beliefs of the Christian, the, the teachings that he imbibes, those things that he believes. Chapter 3, there's the Christian and his character. And then in chapter 4, finally, the Christian and his career. And really the Bible here is referring to everyday life and how that we are to behave as Christians in the world. In introducing this series of messages, I just want to mention a few things regarding the book of Colossians. I want to talk in the first place about the penman of the book. Obviously the Bible was written by men, though it is the word of God. God used men to write down the words of scripture, human pen men. 
That's why you have here the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Colossians. And he begins in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a letter written by him. He's the pen man. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. So Paul is obviously the author of the book. He's the one who is the pen man. When you think about it, Paul is a man who, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, dominates the pages of the New Testament. His story is a thrilling one. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a bigoted Jew who hated Christians. Who on the day that he was converted was actually on his way to punish and persecute Christians. But Acts chapter 9 records the story of how he was converted on the Damascus Road. That's where we get that terminology, a Damascus Road experience. And when he rose from the earth that day, having been knocked off of his beast, he arose a new creature. He became from that moment an instrument of God, a mighty apostle, the foremost evangelist in the New Testament, a pastor. He actually pastored churches on several occasions. We read of him being in Ephesus for a period of at least a year and a half. He was a missionary. In your Bible you may have at the back some maps that trace the missionary journeys of Paul. There are at least four of them. He was a missionary. He brought the gospel as far as Europe. I'm very glad about that. He was a church planter. And it's incredible to think of the congregations that were founded through his ministry. The churches of Galatia, not just one church. Because it mentions at the beginning of that epistle, the churches, verse 2 of chapter 1, of Galatia. He was used of God, and you can read about it in the book of Acts, to start the church in Corinth. The Corinthian church. The Philippian church. Churches in Colossae. Churches in Thessalonica. And other places besides. Paul was a church planter. And in the end he became a martyr for Christ. The Bible doesn't speak of it per se. Except when it speaks of Paul's anticipation of his death in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he writes, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, He knew he was about to die. He was about to be killed by the emperor Nero. And secular history tells us the story of how Paul was beheaded by Nero. A martyr for Christ. But he was a giant. He was a giant of the faith. Some have suggested that even the name Paul has the indication in it of smallness. It is believed that Paul was probably very small of stature. He does refer in places to the weakness of his own appearance. He was a man who apparently suffered from bad eyesight. Some have traced that back 
uh, to the day when he was almost struck blind by the light from heaven. He couldn't see anything for three days. You remember when he first got saved? But certainly it would appear from reading the New Testament that Paul had trouble with his eyes. He talked to the church of Jesus Christ about them being so loving toward him that they would be willing to pluck out their own eyes and give them to him. He's referring to the fact that he probably suffered from what doctors call ophthalmia. He had very bad eyesight. He talks about the way he wrote some of his letters. And he's not referring to the length of the epistle. He's referring to the size of the letters that he used. Cursives. He said, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. He's talking about the size of the letters on the page. Because his eyesight was bad. But it was a mighty instrument in the hand of God. Colossians is one of 13 out of 20 New Testament epistles that Paul wrote. 13 of them. It is, as I said earlier, a prison epistle. He wrote other letters from jail to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, where he talks about himself as the prisoner of the Lord, and to the Philippians. Now, just check out what it says in Colossians chapter 4, in verse 3. With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. When he says, I am in bonds, he means that he was incarcerated in prison and was restrained in some way. Whether it be with chains or cords, he was in bonds. Again, verse 18. He asked the people of God in chapter 4, verse 18, to remember my bonds. Remember that I'm in prison and pray for me. Now one of the interesting things that I have to say about the epistle to the Colossians is that Paul is writing to people in a city where he apparently had never visited. Now I don't know that for a fact, but I do know that it says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, notice that, He's not talking about personal experience of this that he has seen. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. And again in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. So he's, he's going by hearsay. And then chapter 2 verse 1 indicates the same thing. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. Notice this. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So that is an indicator. Certainly that people in Laodicea and some of those other churches probably had never seen him in the flesh. But it could also be true of Colossae. He may never have visited that place. Now I hasten to say there are some who believe that he must have visited there when he journeyed from Galatia to Ephesus. And the thought is that perhaps he stayed long enough in that place to see these men, Epaphras and Philemon, converted. And to see a small Christian witness 
established. That's possible. Uh, but it is obvious from his words, chapter 2, verse 1, that hardly any of the Colossians knew Paul by sight. If they'd seen him on the street, they wouldn't know who he was. As many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And yet think about this, his, his regard for them was so strong. He loved those people so much. He prayed for them on a regular basis. And there are people that we've never met. I suppose we could say even in the Free Presbyterian Church, there are people that we've never met. Some of our friends, our fellow members, especially in our churches overseas, or some even in this country because we're so spread abroad. People that we've never actually met. And we would walk past them on the street. If we met them, we might say hello, but we wouldn't know who they were. But yet we can have a love for them, can't we? We can have a regard for them and we can pray for one another. So Paul is the penman. But from the penman, I want us to think about the place, Colossae. It's mentioned obviously here in chapter 1 verse 2. The saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. The place. An actual geographical location. Chapter 4 verse 16 then mentions when this epistle is read among you cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. This would indicate that Laodicea wasn't very far away from Colossae and a map will show you that that in fact is the case. Laodicea and another place called Hierapolis which is mentioned in verse 13 of chapter number uh, 3 sorry chapter number 4 verse 13 them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis these were three cities a trio of cities in close proximity and there were Christians in all these places. Now that would have been an encouragement for God's people, wouldn't it? To know that there's a church in your city, but there's also one in two neighboring cities. In Hierapolis and Laodicea. There are Christians in all three of these places. And I know having grown up in Ulster, when we've had congregations that were pretty closely located that's an encouragement. The city of Colossae was about 125 miles southeast of Ephesus. It was a coastal city. It was an area that was rich in minerals. It was very, very prosperous. And you know, it's very difficult for the church to prosper in a place where there's great materialistic prosperity. That's a fact. There are people who are so rich, they believe they don't need God. They don't want for anything. They don't have to pray for their needs to be met. They're so rich, they have so much money, they've got money that they, they could give away. Houses, lands, wealth. And sometimes it can be really, really difficult 
to make inroads among people like that. No doubt it would have been like that in Colossae to some degree. Remember what Jesus said about this? How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. This is the problem with materialism and riches. It comes between you and God. This was a very prosperous place. And we've read that the population in Colossae was a typical mix of races. It was a very cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire. A bit like many modern American cities. You could say it was a bit like New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Atlanta. Some big center of population like Chicago. That's the kind of city that it was. People from everywhere. From every background, of every color, of every race. And as you might expect, therefore, it was a city of many and varied religions. Oh, so many belief systems. And as a typical city in those days in the Roman Empire, it was full of Greek philosophers and religious zealots of various kinds. The ungodly and licentious lifestyle of the Romans, which is legendary, it was very deep-rooted and deep-seated in Colossae. People living in great wickedness. There was also, we've read, a large Jewish colony there with a synagogue in the city. So this is the place where there was a Christian church. And it does seem that the church there was very closely connected with its sister church in Laodicea, as was indicated in the words we read in chapter 4, where Paul said, whenever this epistle, this letter to the Colossians, when that's read among you, I want you also to see that it's read in the church of the Laodiceans. And the letter that's written to them, I want it to be read in your church. So that's the place. What about the people? The people... Of Colossae. We refer to them as the Colossians, obviously. Now, it is a fact that neither the city of Colossae nor the congregation that was established there are mentioned in the book of Acts. I think that's interesting. That's not, of course, true of Corinth, because when you go to Acts chapter 18 and following, you'll see the story of how the Corinthian church got started. It's true of a number of the other churches, Thessalonica and Philippi. You know there in Acts chapter 16 what happened in relation to that and the Philippian jailer and Lydia who was converted and the young woman who was taken with the spirit of divination. Probably people who were the crux of that church. They were the heart of that church at the beginning. But that's not true of the church in Colossae. However, we do know, and we can read Acts chapter 19 for confirmation of this, that Paul spent three years altogether at Ephesus. And obviously, there must have been an outgrowth of the work in Ephesus into other areas round and about. Look with me at Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. It says, and this continued, and what he's referring to is what's 
what's described in verse 8 when he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God this he says in verse 10 continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks and when you come to chapter 20 of the book of Acts you will see how Paul refers to his ministry in that place. He talked about being with them in chapter 20 of Acts and verse 31. He says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul's talking about his ministry in that city of Ephesus. There was a man who was converted in Ephesus, who was trained in Ephesus for the work of the gospel, and he's mentioned in the book of Colossians. Look at chapter 1 of Colossians and verse 7. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Again, you consider chapter 4 of Colossians and verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. It is believed, and commentators have referred to this, that Epaphras went back to his native city of Colossae and he preached the gospel there. And it may well be that Colossae was then a mission church. In other words, what we're saying is the work in Colossae was a child of the mother congregation at Ephesus. And what a blessing that is. When God prospers the work of a church to such a degree that other churches are started out of that church. I have to say I grew up in the free church seeing that happen over and over and over again. I belonged to the Martyrs Church. The Ravenhill Church as it was called originally then it moved up to become the Martyrs Memorial Church. There are a number of churches that were started as outreaches from the martyrs. The church in Bangor, the church in Ballygown, the church at the John Knox Memorial, the church in Newton Abbey, the church in Ballinahinch. And my mind fails me to speak of the others, but there are others. Bunch of churches where people used to come to the Martyrs Church and then they had services in their own communities. Cumber is another one. People then began to meet in small fellowships in those areas and those became churches in their own right. The Martyrs was always the mother church, but they were the daughters. And many of those churches now have flourished to such a degree 
that they're the size of the mother or maybe bigger. Do you ever see that with a dog? You see this little dog and then you see another dog with it and it's a big dog. And you are told, that little dog, that's the mother and that big dog, that's the child of the mother. It's an amazing thing. Sometimes that happens in church life as well. And some of our other congregations have been mothers of other churches. And I don't want to get into the whole history of that, but the Reverend John Wiley, who's now with the Lord in heaven, was used to start about five or six congregations. Mr. Foster, Ivan Foster, was used to start a similar number of churches. It's a wonderful thing when a church can be a mother church. I know how we would love to see such expansion of the work of God today. Many of our congregations here in North America are struggling. They're small. They're not in a position to become mothers of other churches. But if God were to move in revival, that would happen. It would happen. And God is able. Now I've mentioned Epaphras as one of the people in the church at Colossae. There's another man by the name of Philemon or Philemon. And he was most likely a convert of Paul's as well. And from what we read in the Bible, both in Colossians and in the book of Philemon itself, it seems that this man was used of God to host the church at Colossae. Look with me at Philemon. And I'm not going to say chapter 1 because there is only one chapter. Titus and Philemon and then Hebrews. So in the epistle of Paul to Philemon, verse 2, notice what Paul says. He's writing, And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. The church in thy house. And you'll see there that there are certain names as well in Philemon verse 23 and 24. There salute thee Epaphras. There he is. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So he's in Colossae. Marcus. That's the man that we know as John Mark. Or Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Marcus. Aristarchus. Demas, sadly one who left the Apostle Paul, who left the ministry altogether, went after the world. Lucas, or Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. My fellow laborers. Quite a collection of men. And we know from our reading of Scripture that the members of the Colossian church must have been mostly Gentile converts. Because of the location of that church. What a delight that is. Oh, we want to see our churches built up with people, no matter where they come from. If they happen to be believers who want to come into a better situation, be under a better ministry, a more faithful ministry, if you like, which hopefully we would be compared to where they're at, that's a good thing. But wouldn't we love to see our churches built up with converts? People that just come in off the street or people who we know who 
have no interest in the things of God and all of a sudden the Lord begins to deal with them and brings them in and saves them. That would be our prayer. That would be our desire. To see the church built with converts. What a delight that would be. So the people of Colossae are here. But there's one thing I want to mention as we conclude this opening message. And that is the problem at Colossae. There was a problem here. It's believed that Epaphras visited Paul when he was in prison. And he reported to Paul that some new teachings had infiltrated the Colossian church. The work was in great danger of being destroyed, frankly. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Paul obviously felt that that was a danger. That there could be some to lead them astray. Look again, chapter 2, verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Again, he's warning them about the danger of false doctrine. And this continues. Verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Talking about the Judaizers and those who wanted people to live under the ceremonial law of Israel. And then verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So you can see from these verses that there was a great danger from those who had infiltrated the work or who would infiltrate the work. The chief heresy being promoted was that which denied both the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ as the head of the church. Those were the two things. They denied the sufficiency of Christ. In other words, you could be saved by works or by other means other than Christ or as well as Christ. And the other was the supremacy of Christ as the head of the church. Paul actually uses the term concerning some, verse 19 of chapter 2, and not holding the head. You see, not having Christ in his rightful place in their minds and hearts. Now, commentators will tell you that the chief heresy that was being taught in Colossae at the time was Gnosticism. You may have heard of the Gnostics. They were Greeks. But Gnosticism was a heresy that actually involved a mixture of Eastern mysticism and Jewish legalism. It was a hybrid religion. Eastern mysticism, the kind of thing you would find in, among Hindus and Hare Krishnas and that type of religion where there's a lot of so-called meditation 
emptying your mind and letting your mind be filled with garbage, basically. Eastern mysticism and Jewish legalism. In other words, people who said you had to be circumcised to be saved, the kind of thing that Paul fought against in Galatia. So these two together formed the Gnostic idea. And of course that teaching undermined the teachings of the Gospel, undermined the foundation of the Christian faith altogether. The person of Christ was under attack. The Lord Jesus Christ was not regarded as He ought to be regarded. As the only begotten Son of God, but thought to be a creature. Just like the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses today, the Watchtower Society, there's some Gnostic influence there, and other religions have had the same influence upon them. The person of Christ under attack, but also immorality and sensuality promoted. Is it not an interesting thing that where false religion has prevailed in the world, there has also been a corresponding increase in immorality? Some of the ancient religions were noted for their sexual perversions. And you can read about it for yourself. There was a god that was worshipped called Bacchus. Bacchanalianism is where you get that term. Even in the days of the Old Testament when Eli was the high priest, his sons who were priests were involved in immorality with women in the temple. And in some heathen religions there were women in the, the temples of heathen, heathendom that were there for the satisfaction of the lusts of the men that were there. False religion and immorality, they go together. It's not without significance that when the Bible is listing certain sins, and idolatry is right in the middle of those sins, idolatry is right there in the middle, but on either side you have sins of sensuality, fornication, adultery, idolatry, they go together. So it was in Colossae. And of course there were others there in, in the Colossian city who added on their narrow views of Jewish ritualism. Uh, they insisted upon certain dietary laws being followed. You couldn't eat certain things. There were fast days and the keeping of holy days that were to do with this, the ceremonial law of Israel. Had nothing to do with the New Testament church. And these were all false beliefs and false practices that had to be addressed. They had to be confronted. They had to be corrected by the apostle. And gospel truth set forth in clear and precise terms. And friends, that's always the answer to falsehood, is the teaching of truth. That's how you deal with falsehoods. You instruct people in the truth. So that they're proof against these things. And that's what the apostle endeavoured to do. 
And just like the Colossians were warned, so we have to be warned in our day to beware of false teachings and false teachers in the church of Jesus Christ. Remember how the Bible talks about men crept in unawares. They're kind of like those insects that come out of dark places. Whenever they're exposed to the light, they run back into those dark places again. They don't like the light. That's how to deal with false teaching and false teachers. Shine the light of truth upon them. Now note with me what Paul said to the elders at Ephesus. And of course this is significant because Ephesus was a neighboring congregation to Colossae. Acts chapter 20 and verses 29 and 30. Well, we'll read verse 28 to get the connection. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, you elders, you need to pay attention to yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And he's talking about men, not creatures. He doesn't mean that there will be literally wolves, as in dog-like animals that would come. He means men. Wolves that are in sheep's clothing. And they'll enter in, not sparing the flock. They're there to do damage to the flock of God. They're there to destroy the flock of God. And then the next verse, he says in verse 30, Also of your own selves... Think about that. You men, among you, shall men arise speaking perverse, perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. You've got to be vigilant. Because false teaching and false teachers can arise even within faithful churches. And we learn this also from the Lord's words. In 2 Peter, in the chapter 2 and verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily, that means secretly or privately, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. It's a very real danger. And we therefore need, like the Colossians, to know what we believe and why we believe it. You know, don't just be satisfied with saying, well, that's what our church teaches. Or that's what our minister thinks. This is what our denomination teaches. Now we need to know what we believe from the Bible and why we believe it. And be ready to give an answer to those that would ask us about the hope that lies within us. With this I will close. Words that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You'll find these words in verse 14. When he's warning him about evil men and seducers waxing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, he says, But 
Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Just you continue on with the things that you have learned but things that you've been assured of you're in absolutely no doubt at all this is the truth of God and no matter who comes with some contrary opinion or thought I'm not going to accept it because that's not what the Bible teaches may the Lord help us to be such a people in such a church that we're, vi- we're vigilant when it comes to doctrine and teaching and those who would teach us that will be like the men of Berea who search the scriptures daily whether those things were so it wasn't just that Paul said it but when Paul said it they examined the Bible to see if the Bible corresponded with what Paul said so may the Lord help us to be good Bereans for his honour and glory Amen